You're listening to TIP. That's the joy of seeing the building built, being part of the physical work, walking around all day, coming home covered in dust, exhausted. That is what it is about for me. The work and, and seeing your efforts move the work forward. I was like, this is it for me. This is what I like to do. Hey guys, in this week's episode, I got to sit down with Antonia Botero and talked about her amazing journey from Colombia to the United States, how a robotics club taught her many important life and entrepreneurial lessons, what her journey in academia was like, what the MAD Project is all about, why the art of asking is an important skill to develop, and what it's been like designing and building her dream home in Park City, Utah. Antonia started her career in luxury landscape design and architecture before transitioning into real estate development. Her development project management experience ranges from large-scale multifamily conversions and ground-up construction projects in Manhattan to branded and independent hotel renovations across national markets. She is the owner of The Mad Project, which is a boutique real estate project management and consulting firm. Antonia received an MS in urban design from MIT and a professional bachelor's degree in architecture from the University of Miami. She is also a registered architect in Florida, New York, and Utah. It was an absolute pleasure to get the chance to talk with Antonia as I've been following her on Twitter for quite some time and following her journey. She provides a ton of value on Retweet, and her newsletter is an absolute must-read. I think you guys are really going to love this interview. And so, without further delay, let's jump into this week's episode with Antonia Botero. You are listening to Real Estate 101 by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Patrick Donnelly, interview successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Welcome to the Real Estate 101 podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Donnelly. And with me today is a really special guest I'm excited to have on the show, Antonio Botero. Antonia, welcome to the show. Thanks, Patrick. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, really happy to have you here. I've been following you on real estate Twitter here for, I don't know, the past month or two and really excited to have you. I wanted to start first by talking about your early years. I know that I believe both of your parents were involved in real estate to some degree. I wanted to hear what kind of impact that they had on you growing up and kind of what kind of life and business lessons that they imparted to you. From when I was little, my parents were developers in, in Colombia and a developer in Colombia at that time, like in the 80s and early 90s, it was a little bit different. There wasn't this sort of like developer, general contractor divide. There were, if you were a developer, you hired the trades directly. It was a little bit of a different setup. You're also sort of like a GCCM role. I just remember going to the job site and playing with sand and then the smell of concrete and kind of that overall feeling of like making something out of nothing. My father's always done his own thing. Like he's never worked for anyone else. And my mother always stressed the importance of, of education. And so, you know, when my parents grew up in Colombia, going to college was not something everyone did, but it was kind of beginning to matter. Like at that time, it was like, it was starting to be the thing, like, oh, you got to go to college. And so I kind of grew up with that mentality. You know, my mom always sort of said, you got to study. And so that's kind of one of the things that really she instilled in me. But she didn't graduate from college. And so, and I don't think she did this intentionally, but she really kind of pushed the idea of hard work. So it wasn't so much about you got to study. It was more whatever it is that you're going to do, you got to do it really well. And I think that comes from like entrepreneurship attitude towards life. 
that both my parents had. Growing up, I knew that if I wanted something, I had to work for it, whether it was in sports or academically, or if I wanted anything else, like it was up to me. Even though my mom didn't go to college, she always figured things out. That kind of just figure it out and you're going to, you know, you're going to have to figure it out for yourself was kind of what I grew up with. What comes from that experience or my parents being in real estate. And there's actually the second part of that story where it's a rougher part of the story to tell. And it's so basically when my parents were developers, there was a major economic shift in Colombia and many small builders went under, including my parents. And as a result of that and, and other things, their company went under and ultimately they got divorced. My life growing up after that point with my mom was basically this constant search for stability. Because, you know, a lot of the support system that she had sort of assumed she would have to raise me was different all of a sudden. And so that's kind of, there's kind of these different parts to that experience of my parents being developers where the hard work, the entrepreneurship, the figure it out attitude also came with, if this goes south, this is what happens. And to experience that as a kid it really does mark your life. And, and a lot of those feelings and, and sort of ideas from that time, oh, you know, it explains a lot of the way that I approach business now because I saw and I lived through the experience of my parents going under and then getting divorced. That obviously has, has shaped my life and the way that I do the work. And in a lot of ways too, it really has cemented that the more I look back, the more I see that building things, making something out of nothing has been a theme forever. And to me, that's been really the way that I've approached finding that stability in my life and my family now. So it's a really cool way to sort of look back and make the connections. But there's definitely the tougher parts of the story that, that are definitely there. It's had a massive impact. Your early years were in Colombia. And then at what age did you come to, you were in Miami, is that correct? That's right. I was born in Colombia and we lived there until I was about nine years old. And then I moved to the U.S. with my mom at that time. Okay. And then your mom, did she continue in construction in the U.S. or did she, was she doing all kinds of things just to get by? So she was always kind of involved in some sort of business endeavor. You know, she was always trying to find a way. A lot of that did end up being in real estate because she did have a background in it. And it wasn't just related to the fact that she had the experience, but she also had the network. And there were several developers, Colombian developers who had moved to the U.S. And at some point, she did end up working as a property manager and, and leasing agent for in-house for a Colombian developer. And that was the majority of my high school years. In the sort of right before that, she actually ended up being consul for the Colombian government. Talk about figuring it out. I mean, she was like, my mom has had the most fabulous life. Like she's been a flight attendant. She lived in Mallorca and was like a travel guide. She's done, she was a Colombian consul for the Colombian government in Miami. And she's just had some fabulous stories and a really rich life that is also super inspiring to me to see her kind of not have that fear to say, well, I've never done that before, but I'm going to figure it out because, you know, financially she had to, but also like from a, a, an adventure standpoint, and she was just like, oh, it's going to be a great adventure. Like I'm, I'm going to be console now and I'm going to figure it out. And to me, it's also been the looking back and hearing people's stories about my mom and realizing that that ethos of like super hard work and just being excellent at what you do, like that's all that people ever have to say about my mom. 
And that makes me super proud. And that's kind of the thing that really she really taught me was hard work, being excellent at what you do, keeping your word and and just being a good human will take you far in terms of your professional career. And so that's my mom. I also wanted to talk a little bit more about your younger years. I asked Bobby Fion this question about when he was young, was he more into like the wheeling and dealing of Monopoly or if he was more into like the design architecture aspect of Legos? And so I wanted to hear more about you as a kid. Were you, did you lean in one direction or the other? I always drew from when I was little. And like I mentioned, I grew up on a construction site when my parents were developers, making things and taking things apart, putting things back together was really what it was for me. It was like drawing was just what the girls did. I liked getting, so I had that outlet and it was kind of encouraged, but I really just liked taking things apart and figuring out how things worked. That was more my speed. And then in high school, I did robotics and that opened up a whole entire world of things that I could never have imagined. I finally understood what design and engineering meant. And I was fortunate that my high school participated in a program called First Robotics. And its first stance were for recognition, for inspiration and recognition of science and technology. And that's really what the program's about. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. But we also did BattleBots IQ. And BattleBots is now on like Discovery Channel. Like you can watch it and it's super cool. And some of the people that I did robotics with when I was in high school, they're like now like in their 40s and they're on BattleBots. And it's super cool because I know them, right? I'm like, oh, I, I build robots with that, guys. But basically, First Robotics is where I learn more generally this idea of the abundance mentality that now we talk about a lot and that's become a little bit more mainstream. And I grew up in competitive sports. I grew up playing tennis. And so competition was natural to me. I, I was used to it. But all of a sudden, when you go into robotics, there was this whole entire different thing. I mean, it was completely different. It was competitive, but it was different. So I'll go back to that. But essentially, first robotics is a task-based competition. And there's this field design with a sequence of activities. And so you have to, usually the field has two sides and then you have two robots that compete against each other. There's a time period and there's all these rules. Your robot can weigh more than a certain amount and you can only use certain components. And it's pretty serious. And my story with FIRST is really interesting because about 10 years ago, I actually mentored a team. And so I got to see the program from a completely different perspective than I did when I was participating as a student. When I was a student, the thing that I found really remarkable that really sticks with me to this day is the generosity that everyone showed with the work. And FIRST has this tradition, and I think this is such a cool story, has this tradition of team buttons, you know, those like buttons that you make with the button machine and you put your picture on them or whatever. So each team makes their own buttons and you bring them to competition and you make a thousand buttons and you show up to competition. And the first competition that we had, and I didn't know about this, right? We show up to Orlando to this competition. Coach gives each of us like a handful of buttons and he says, go and talk to other teams, go trade those buttons, come back with a bunch of other teams buttons, talk to them. Ask them how they overcame the challenges of the competition. Ask them where they're from. Ask them what their schools are like. Like, just go talk to all these people. And it, it began to create this familiarity with the other teams and, and the sort of shared bond of building a robot. You know, like we had this shared experience of building a robot and that created this bond from people with people that we would have never met otherwise that were from we were from I grew up in Miami. And so we were meeting teams from like Iowa and like. California. And they had these amazing stories that were so different from ours. And so it was this crazy world that, that opened up. 
And that familiarity was just really great. And it's something that when I came to coach robotics, I realized they call this cooperation. And it's sort of like cooperation and competition. It's so geeky. But I didn't know that term when I was in high school participating. I learned about it after the fact. And I'm like, oh, that's what that was. And the mentors and the, the coaches that built these teams, they, they really were great at transmitting it to the students, right? Because you're teaching kids a fairly complex, I think that's a very mature and complex thing to teach a kid to say, go talk to other people, make bonds with people who are different than you. And we're going to do it based on this robot that we built. And then it began sort of building on top of that, this whole idea that everyone wanted everyone else to succeed. If someone had a fried motor and you had an extra one, you gave it to them, right? There was no question. Even if you ended up seeing that team in a match later on in the competition, you didn't want to win because you were selfish. You wanted to win because you were the best, right? There was nothing more disappointing than not competing. Like losing was like, okay, you did your best. You did amazing. You broke a record. You learned all these things. Cool. If you got there and for whatever reason, the other team got defaulted, maybe the robot wasn't working or or they were outside parameters and weren't allowed to compete. That was more disappointing because you didn't want to win because the other team couldn't compete. That is such a complex thing to teach a high school kid. I mean, that is to me to this day, it's one of the biggest lessons I've learned in my life and it affects my business you know, every day. And so when I mentor the team later, you know, 10 years ago, I realized the program was like so much more, right? It wasn't just building the robot and, and talking to all these people from all these other places. It was, it's like running a business, the way that they give you the support. And so it's kind of, there's different departments, there's marketing, there's fundraising, because you got to pay for all these trips and all these materials and stuff. And then a big part of that is grant writing. There's a lot of grants that are available. But essentially, the way that the coaches are supposed to show it to the kids is they're supposed to, you're supposed to teach them to run a company. So there's like marketing, fundraising, business planning, logistics of setting up the trips. You got to do the hotel reservations. You got to figure out where you're going to have your meals. Like, And you're having the kids do all this. It is a fantastic program. I mean, I could speak about this for days because it's all of a sudden space for all those kids who maybe are not great academically. And maybe they're not great in sports either. And so all of a sudden, entrepreneurship is really where it's at for them. And the kid, you know, we had a kid that was this, he created these insane designs. He was, he could draw and he created this insane logo for the team and this beautiful robot transformer looking. And their team mascot was like the Buccaneers. And so he did like a transformer with like a pirate hat. And it was amazing. Like I was floored. I was like, this kid is 14 years old. And so now it was then getting this to the other kids in the team who could figure out how to put this into a hoodie. And then it was like, okay, go find out what the budget is. Okay, do we have enough money to do that? Okay, no, we got to do a bake sale to afford the hoodies. I mean, and it was just this fantastic world that is an amazing opportunity for for high school kids. I mean, I, I could not like sell it enough and it kind of goes back to the founder first. This guy's called uh, Dean Kamen, and he's this fascinating character. I think he's received like hundreds of millions of dollars from the Department of Defense to do, to invent things. And he's just amazing. And I'm probably not doing his story any justice. But the way that he's chosen to give back by creating this program and instilling all of these really beautiful principles into it, I think it's just, there's no... I don't think there's a good way to measure that impact. And I can tell tell you from my life, 
not only did it cement my love for making things and understanding how things are made, but it taught me that abundance mentality, which is now the core of how I run my work and the empathy and the other side that is so crucial in, in negotiation and in building strong teams. Whenever people ask me about this conversation, oh, did you play with Legos or whatever? I'm like, no, but let me tell you about robotics because it wasn't just about the sting. It was about the generosity behind it and the self-reflection and, and all of these really massive principles that you kind of discover for the first time when you're that age, but then you build on in life as you grow up and as you get to know yourself as an individual. That's kind of my story of how I, I came to love to make things. That's super cool. I, I mean, it sounds like so many great experiences and really formative for you. I mentioned before we started here, I've got a stepson who's into robotics. He's in eighth grade and he's kind of at that age where it's like he wants to be in with the cool kids, but he's not, you know, he's not good at sports. I mean, he really is into Legos and robotics and he's like, that's his passion. But you're starting to get peer pressure at that age that like ah, robotics isn't cool. So we're dealing with that. I'd love for him to continue to have the experience that you had and, and learn some of those lessons, but we'll see. To be honest, I think it's really cool. And when you look at the companies that back first or even the companies that back BattleBots, it's remarkable. I mean, some of those people are putting rockets into space. I mean, it's kind of like what becomes cool. You know, as you get older, you look back and you're like, here, like that kid that I went to school with is now putting rockets in space. Like, that's pretty neat. I'm sure that that's something that happens as he grows. That's exactly what I told him last night. I said, some of those kids that you're with now are going to do amazing things. And the cool kids that you think you want to hang out with, like mm, their lives might not be that remarkable. That's really cool. though. I, I love hearing that story. So at what age? So you're in high school, you're doing robotics. Sounds like you were doing tennis as well. What age did you decide to pursue architecture? And, and tell us about that next step for you. For me, I mean, I always wanted to be a real estate developer and the way that I grew up because drawing was encouraged, it was almost like a not a choice. Like you're like, well, if you want to be a developer, you need to know how to build buildings because that's how I understood it. If you wanted to do business, you went to business school and that business may or may not be development. When I went to school, there wasn't this whole like the real estate programs were just starting to be a thing. I think I remember the University of Miami started the real estate program when I was either a junior or a senior in my five year undergrad. They weren't it wasn't like a choice so much. And so I said, well, if I want to go do this, I need to learn how to build buildings and you learn how to build buildings in architecture school. That was just logical, which looking back, a lot of people will say, well, not necessarily, but that's the path that I had chosen. And it was a path that I was well suited for. I was really great academically. I could draw really well. And so it really just made sense from an aptitude standpoint to go to architecture school. My dad really wanted me to go to architecture school. And so when it came time to choose what to major in, I chose international relations. And so at that point, through the turns of life and that it really was not my choice. I ended up being recruited into the University of Miami School of Architecture because my initial intention to do international relations did not work out for a whole host of reasons, many of them related to my immigration status. And so I ended up having to come back to Miami and go to architecture school. That was, that ended up being the only choice I had at the time, which is pretty wild because 
obviously that was the path that was intended for me. I went to university in Miami and I have a five-year degree in architecture. It's a professional degree. It's an AAB accredited, which is what you need to do if, if you want to eventually sit for the architectural registration exam. That's kind of how I, I ended up going to architecture school. Did the international relations dream, was that because your mom was doing some, she was a consul or how did that develop? A hundred percent. And so when my mom was a consul, she had a pretty tough job. She, for a little while, she did, she was like on the visa desk. And so she would issue visas for a special visa, not just like tourists who wanted to go to Colombia. Not a lot of people require tourist visas to go to Colombia. But for example, she did a lot of visas for like the U.S. Southern Command. So there was a lot of, there's a lot of military, U.S. military bases in Colombia. And so a lot of the military people went in and out. They needed a special visa to be doing these specific military operations. And anyway, so my mom spent a ton of time there. And, you know, all the stories of these like fantastic characters that she got to like issue visas for, right? Like these people had some crazy stories about all over the world and. That was a little bit of it. And then the second part of her tenure at the consulate, she ended up being whenever someone goes to prison in a foreign country, your government steps in and provides some consular assistance to ensure that your human rights are being honored. That was her job, which was in a really difficult time of the Colombia U.S. history, because that was in the early 2000s when the U.S. was extraditing all of the Colombian drug lords. And most of them are in federal prison in Florida. A lot of the work that my mom had to do would be to go and speak to these people who were international drug lords. Also crazy stories. And it was a mix of, you know, are your human rights being honored? You're getting access to your lawyer. Your process is following the law. And in addition to that, it was sort of letting them know that all of their possessions were being taken by the government back in Colombia. It was this complex sort of a lot of law and a lot of these international stories. And so, of course, that prompted my interest in saying, well, you know, maybe there's more to life than making things and building buildings. Let me study some of that. And, and I think I, you know, the idea of I had to take some anthropology classes and some like, I know they had this class called Arts of Africa and it was it fulfilled one of those requirements to study international relations. And, and honestly, like, it was amazing. Like the idea of like those people were different than you and that empathy that it requires to kind of bridge that gap. And I've come to learn now that that applies to anything you do in life. And that to me at the time was very intriguing and very interesting. And I loved reading and I loved Latin American literature. And there, there was this sort of I wanted to kind of get back to not just being in the U.S. I, for me, being a, a child of an immigrant, really, that grew up kind of here and there, you're not from here or from there. When I talk to my cousins in Colombia, they're like, oh my gosh, you're so American. And then when I talk to people here, they're like, oh my gosh, you're so exotic. And I'm like, well, anyway, that's kind of where I came from. And that was short-lived. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. 
While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. Let's talk about why you decided to go to MIT, which is awesome, and pursue an advanced degree there. For sure. I graduated undergrad in 2008. And leading up to that, especially in Miami, everyone was like, well, you're not going to get a job. Like, you're just not. You know, the economy doesn't exist right now. There's no jobs for you. So you're going to go to graduate school and you're going to become a professor. And so, you know, you're like 22 and you're like, okay. I applied to grad school and I got into MIT and I wanted to study urban design because a lot of the work that we did at the University of Miami was also very urban oriented. You know, the dean at the time was Elizabeth Plater Zyberg. She is one of the leaders of new urbanism. And so that was sort of instilled in all the work that we did, all the studios, all the design that we did. It was like the urban, right? 99% of people who experience your buildings are never going to go inside of them. That was super intriguing to me. And also the idea of studying cities and how people built and how people conceived of cities. And I, again, that same like empathy and idea of like making things just really came together for me in in urban design. And the idea was that I was going to become a professor. If you are going to become a professor, you definitely need a master's degree and you might also need a PhD, which I ended up applying for and getting into and then deciding that I was sort of done. And the economy had come back and New York was an an option. So that took a different course. But at the time, the reason I went to grad school was because of the moment when I graduated and, and sort of the market at the time. It just led me there. And also, again, I had the aptitude for academia. I was good at it. I liked it. It was enjoyable and and it spoke to me at the time. So it, I think it was a great choice. And again, now I'm looking back, it was a choice that was meant for me and something that I use a ton in my work. That was kind of the, the path. 
After you graduated from MIT, you took a job in New York City? That's right. I moved to New York and I wanted to build buildings. That started to become more and more clear at that point. I think, you know, academia ultimately was not for me and it wasn't because of the work. It was because of the politics. And very quickly, I was like, mm, not only that, but I, I did want to see things come out of the ground. I was like, I had published some things and I had been part of publications and books. And I was like, this is cool to have this physical thing that you've made. Now I, I want a building. The way to do that was going to New York and building buildings in New York. So I went to work for a big shop, big architect in New York, and they did all kinds of things. You know, they, they did historic preservation and they did a lot of ULERP process, which is the rezoning process of Manhattan, really of New York. And they basically got entire chunks of Manhattan rezoned. They also did a lot of institutional work. They did new construction. And like any architect that practices in New York, you do a lot of existing conditions work because there's so much existing building stock. Tons of choices there. And at the time, they hired me because of my urban design background, not because of the new construction side. They didn't know that, right? And so when I got there, I'm like, okay, well, what's the lay of the land? I ended up working on a with a very design-oriented sort of principal. He wasn't really a partner, but he was sort of right about to become a partner. And then there was the guy who did new construction. And that's the guy I wanted to work with. And at the time, I was like, well, I, I know how to do all these things. And I would just take on any work that was extra. And I was new. It was like, well, give any extra work to Antonia. Like she just started working here, right? Thankfully, that meant I ended up working with every single partner in the firm, which was unusual at the time because they had so many different niche expertise. You know, one did urban design, one did campus stuff, one did preservation. I really wanted to work with the new construction guy, but he was super intimidating, right? He had just become a partner and he, so he was one of the younger partners and he was just this huge personality. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, but the only way was to, to talk to him. And so I kind of stalked his office for a couple of weeks because he was very busy, right? And so I could never catch the guy. And so I stalked his office. I would like pass by and I'd be like, is he in there? You know? And finally I got him and I'm like, hey, look, I want to work with you. I want to be in the field. I want to do construction administration. And so he was like, okay, well, you're going to have to tell the guy that you're working with, the guy who hired you, you're going to have to tell him that you want to work with me now. And you were hired as an architect that wanted to go out into the field. Yes. And this is one of the things that we kind of comes up a lot. Architects do all kinds of things. Like they don't just draw. You also do a lot of observation of the construction process. And I was really interested in that part of it. And actually, you need some experience in that part of it to get your license. First, you got to get your professional degree. Then you got to get your experience. And then you have to, depending on the state, some states let you sit for the exam right when you graduate. Some states, you have to get a certain amount of experience before they even let you sit for the exam. And so in New York State, you have to have, I think, like a year of experience before you can sit for the exam. Whereas in Florida, where I had graduated from, you don't. I ended up becoming registered in Florida before I became registered in New York. But anyway, you need the experience in the field. I didn't want it just for the sake of registration. I wanted it because I wanted to be out there. I, I wanted to smell the concrete and play with the sand and see the buildings come out of the ground. But now I had to go and tell this guy who had been really wonderful to me, who had hired me, that now I wanted to work with this other partner. And so it was this really hairy situation because I was like, I don't want to let him down, but I really want to do this. And so I ended up doing both. And I learned a ton in that, in that whole process. It's a common theme 
I interviewed Sean Sweeney about a month or so ago and, and just like the idea, the theme of just taking on whatever you can do to learn. It's something that he did. It sounds like something that you did as well. And so you're in two different, were you under two different department heads in a sense? Yeah. And at the time, I was also working a little bit with one of the partners who did historic preservation and and he did a lot of institutional work. And at that time we did, we were doing tax, we were doing briefs for cases that, for tax credit cases that had gone, that the IRS had contested. So people will go in and apply for tax credits based on the historical designation of their buildings. And the IRS, after in like additional review, came back and said, you don't get these tax credits. That's actually not how the zoning would work or you wouldn't have been able to do that kind of building. So you don't deserve those tax credits. And in order to defend that, the IRS hired this firm. I was doing all kinds of stuff. I was working on the, the whole East Side Access for the Grand, Grand Central Terminal. I worked on that. I worked, I was working on the tax cases. I was working in, on a building that had a historic facade that we had to keep, but then we had to build a building behind it. I was working on a massive rezoning of, of Manhattan uh, through a ULERP process. And then we followed with an RFP and we won. And I was working on the interior design for the public areas for the World Trade Center. And it was just like, and this was within a year. I mean, I worked on all these different projects in the span of a year. I was also working on new construction for two buildings in Manhattan. And I was extremely fortunate because they were all very open to giving me the work, which they didn't have to do. You know, this, I think the office at that time had maybe 50 people. And, and I think it, what happened is that at that time it was like, it's 2000, 2012. So they had just started hiring again after the 2008 slowdown that everyone suffered. I was very new and there weren't a ton of young people and there weren't a ton of young people to give all this extra work to. And so I was just very happy to work with all the different partners. Such a good experience. So at what point did you go out into the field and what were you doing? Yeah. So at the time it was that building that about the historic facade that we had to keep and then we had to build a building behind it. That building was super cool because, number one, the whole premise of it, right? You're keeping the facade, but you're building a building behind it. So we had to brace that facade and, and it was really tough getting in there. The lot was a narrow Manhattan lot. You had neighbors on both sides. You were in a historic district. There was just so many complex aspects to it, but it was a small project, right? It, it was it was manageable. So the partner in charge of construction, he was like, okay, well, we'll start you here where it's manageable, it's small enough, but it's still complex and interesting. And it was a great, he, he, that was a great match. Like he knew exactly, he was very good at that. Were you the lead project manager or were you learning from somebody? No, I was basically handed off this project. It was, okay, it's been designed, it's been drawn, it's starting construction, you're up, go. That's wild. Wild, wild. Talk more about that. Like, how were you, I mean, were you teaching yourself? Did you, was he like guiding you along the way? Did you have a bunch of interaction with him day to day that was like, here's what you need to do next? Yeah. So it was a mix. I knew enough to ask questions, right? I knew, I knew that there were things that I didn't know. And so there was a mix of things. There was obviously you're sitting in an open studio where there's people around you. And at the time, I think that a guy had just been hired, a more senior guy had been hired to do exclusively construction administration. I had a ton of questions about how to read drawings, like stuff like that. And he was so generous 
I would be like, hey, Raphael, how do I do this? And he'd be like, look here and open this page and look in the specs. And this is why you refer to that. And that's a big chunk of it. The other part was, you know, the principal, his name's Carlos Cardoso, and we're still friends. And he was like, look, you're going to make mistakes and that's fine. And he's like, and all you have to do is just own up to them right away. Come talk to me and we solve it. And that's it. He's like, you're going to screw this up. And then he would sit there and he would give me these like, he would basically give me a masterclass in construction detailing. I mean, it was wild. Like he would sit with me, he's like, this is how waterproofing works. And he would just draw it in front of me and he'd be like, and this is how you think through this. It wasn't just about this is the detail, go copy it and put it on paper. It was like, this is how you think about this. And so that was tremendous. And it, it was that mix. And then also the first time I did, I had to review all the shop drawings that came in and all of a sudden I had to do rebar shop drawings, which are really complex. And if you've never done them before, you're looking at these drawings and you're like, I have no clue what I'm looking at. And so I picked up the phone and I called the structural engineer. And, and again, also someone that I worked with many, many years following that. And she was wonderful. I was like, Heather, I'm like, I don't know what I'm looking at. Is this a plan? Is this a section? What does this mean? I'm like, what am I checking this for? And she would just laugh and she'd be like, okay, let me explain this to you. And she would walk me through. And that's how I learned. And it was this whole village and this generosity of people who, you know, the guy who worked in the studio, like he didn't have to take his time to teach me. Like we didn't work together technically. He just kind of sat next to me, but we were on the same team. We worked for the same company. We were both in construction. He was like, let me show you. So that, that was, that was really wonderful about, about that time too, in that I had all these people around me who were, who were there. Did you feel like it was a sink or swim type of situation or did you feel like they were going to do whatever they could to help you succeed in the project? I think there was the perception of sink or swim, but the reality was I had all the support and nobody wanted to see me fail. Like, and right. And just because that would have made no sense. That would have been bad for the company. It would have been bad for the project. I mean, the reality was I, I, I had all these people who were there. How was that once you got out into the field? What kind of reception did you get? Was that a tough segue from working into the office? I mean, that's a big change. It wasn't the first time I had been really in the field. When I was in architecture school, I worked in landscape and we did a good bit of being in the field. I mean, it wasn't every day, but it was enough that I, was, I wasn't entirely uncomfortable. The contractor, I think at first was a little bit weary of me. He was like, oh my gosh, you're so young. And like, are you really going to be helpful here? Very quickly, he realized that I was on his team too, and that I could help him come up with solutions to some challenges because this was a really challenging project. And I was also very willing to work with him on different solutions. But one of the first times that we went out there, he did want to have a meeting on the scaffold outside the building in February. And it was like 20 degrees. And he decided, he's like, well, we got to go look at the facade and we got to look at it in the scaffold, like on the scaffold, in like the fifth floor. And I was just standing out there like freezing, like dying. And I'm like, this guy, like, you don't need to have the meeting there. Like you can go look at it and you can go back inside. It was like one of those, this is how we do it, you know, 7.30 in the morning on a Tuesday. A little bit of a test. A little bit. Yeah. So how many years were you at that firm before you moved on from them? I was there for about three years. I became registered. And the minute that I got my license in New York, I was like, okay, I did it. I'm an architect now. I got to go. I got to work in development. It was just like the next, it was the plan, right? Then I made the jump to work in real estate development, in-house or a developer. What kind of projects were you working on with them? That was 
for real sink or swim because I was no longer in that environment of generosity and teaching and and I didn't have this community of, of people. So totally new experience, right? I mean, because you had the robotics background where everything's, I forget the word you used, cooperative or not. Cooperation. Cooperation. <laughs> and so now you're in this new environment where it's highly competitive probably and you don't have any of the coddling or whatever you want to call the word. Yeah. I mean, it was weird because also in architecture, not there wasn't coddling, right? It was more like, well, you, you screwed this up. You go figure it out and come back to me when you have a solution. So there was a lot of that, but it was okay. And it was part of the process. When I went into development, it was a completely different world. And there was, it reminded me more of academia. It was the politics were insane. And it was like, all of a sudden, all these feelings were on the table and not mine, right? It was like the guy that I worked with or the, like, the, my boss, the guy that I worked for. It was that contractor and that other guy. And like, if you spoke to them in a certain way, they got offended. But if you were, if you were helpful, it was bad. If you weren't too, it's like if you were too helpful, that was also not good. And you were just like, that was a lot. It's like a minefield to navigate. Absolutely. So that was kind of the biggest shift there. And then kind of going back to the real ownership, the realization that the only thing that I could do was own all of my decisions and do excellent work. If people get their feelings hurt because you're competent, there's always so much you could do about that. Like you're going to do the best that you can to move the project forward. You're going to put in all of the technical expertise that you have now in construction. You, you know, you're going to do the best that you can, but there's only so much you could do in, in some of those situations. And, and that was like, to me, that was a bigger learning experience too. The fact that I saw how some of the business side of these things worked was very eye opening because these people were ruthless. I mean, there were moments that I was just like, is this okay? And it's like, no, like this is how the world works. Did you ever question if the whole industry was for you at that point? No, no, I, because part of it too. So my role was, um, I was a project manager and the majority of the projects were very close to where their office was located. And so I actually spent a ton of time on site more than ever, more than when I was an architect. And again, to me, that was, that's the joy of seeing the building built, being part of the physical work, walking around all day, coming home covered in dust, exhausted. That is what it is about for me. The work and, and seeing your efforts move the work forward. I was like, this is it for me. This is what I like to do. So what were some of the projects you guys were developing at that time? Bad developer, they're, they're actually notorious for this kind of work because it's really hard work. They do large-scale repositioning of office buildings into luxury rentals. And they mostly do it, or not mostly, they do it exclusively in downtown, in the financial district of Manhattan. And so you have these massive buildings. I mean, they're half a million to two million square feet. And it's these ginormous floor plates. And it's how do you turn that into residential? And they figured out a really good formula between the age of the buildings, the way that the Manhattan Code is written, and the way that they've been able to finance some of these deals. It, they just made, they found a really great combo of circumstances that, that make these projects work really well. And then they hold them. They, they also, they self-manage. They, they're vertically integrated and they're an owner GC. So they hold all the contracts directly with the trains. And then they work with a construction manager and they have a really close relationship with. 
to actually manage the day-to-day of, of the project. That's how they do it. So they're taking existing or semi-vacant office space, turning it into high-end luxury apartments. And so your, was your, I think your first project was what, half a million square feet, something like that? Is that about right? Yeah. So it was a really cool building because it was the floor of the New York Stock Exchange actually went into this building. They decommissioned, obviously they had decommissioned half the, that side. And then the first thing that we had to do was like sever the building and they had an easement for ventilation. And so it was complex, like the, the mechanicals were intertwined between the two buildings. And, and so there was figuring out all that, all those parts. But it, so it was really neat. I have some really cool pictures of like the empty trading floor of the New York Stock Exchange that we're used to seeing on TV. That, you know, that was my first project. And it was, it was pretty wild because it was about, it was about half a million square feet, about 30 floors. And we had about, you know, the floor plates were 20,000 square feet. And then they kind of, they had a bunch of setbacks all the way up to mechanical penthouse, which is smaller. So were you involved in the redesign? I mentioned I had Bobby Fee in, in, on the show recently, and he, he talks about the challenges of taking a space like that and turning it into apartments. Were you involved in that process too, or were you mostly doing the project management? The owner of the company, not, not even like the guy who I work with directly, but the owner of the company, he was very involved in the layouts himself. Like he basically did all the layouts. And when I started working at the time, it was right around the time when they were doing layouts. And I, I had a chance to sit with him a couple of times and I would have some input. And I was like, well, how about we do it like this? And, you know, and he was like, oh, you're very good at this. I'm like, well, that's kind of what I do. And I had done a bunch of coming, my experience coming from Buyerblinder Bell, which was the architecture firm that I had worked with, was new construction in Manhattan. And so the ideal kind of like the market understanding of proportions for apartments in Manhattan was something that I had been doing day in and day out for the last three years. Because even though I was doing all these cool projects, like I was also working in the new construction projects, which is super cool. And I really wanted to do those. And so I had learned from the partners and like what makes a really good apartment in New York. Those lessons really coming in and, and then learning from this developer and how they would envision changing these office, super crazy, deep office floor plates into apartments and then kind of marrying the two was a really cool experience from the technical standpoint of drawing and understanding what makes a good living space. How long would a project like that take? And did you see it from like start to finish? I saw the way we start to it, like right when they acquired the building. That's kind of when I came on board. I did not see it finished, actually, but I did see it through, I want to say maybe 50 to 60 percent of construction. And I had already teed up the rest of the millwork and like the finishes and stuff like that. Like I had been involved in getting those things ready, but I didn't actually see it open. That's a great experience though. At that point in the back of your mind, did you always know that you wanted to start your own firm? I think a lot of the contrast between coming from an environment where you were just going to do excellent work and, and we all wanted each other to do excellent work. Going to the developer side where all of a sudden there was a very different approach. That was, for me, the beginning of the thought to say, you don't have to run a place like this. You don't have to have this attitude. You don't have to put up with these things. I mean, when you're working at a big shop and you're doing these big projects, you have to put up with it because you have to build a building, period. But it's not about being soft. It's like you do what you got to do. But for me, it was that first realization that there's a better way to approach the work, not just as a company, but as an individual, right? Like I met a bunch of people who approached the work very differently and they had a very different ethos 
in how they put work out into the world. And they did exceptional stuff. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't for me, though. That was the beginning of that kind of like, mm, there's, I would do it differently. And the only way that if you truly believe that, then go open up your own thing. That was the start of it for me. So is that what you did after that firm? Did you go start the MAD project? Or was that kind of simultaneously while you were working there and you were starting the MAD project on the side? How did that unfold? I think that first idea came up for me and I kind of gave it as a birthday present to myself. I incorporated my company in 2017. And then I was just sort of thinking of doing, you know, I was doing side things, you know, like someone's like, hey, we want to do a building report. We want to do this or, and I would just take it on through MAD project because I was like, well, you know, and then slowly that began to grow a little bit. And then at that time, I was like, okay, I need a different opportunity. I want to get out of this and I want to do my own thing. Just through the craziness of the industry, I met a guy who was putting together a team for a hotel developer and they had all of these hotels all over the country. And so they needed to put a team together. And so he started talking to me about that. And that sounded really cool because it was, it was a different shift. It wasn't the project management aspect, it was more the executive idea of putting together a team that we're going to manage a high volume of work. And so that was sort of the beginning of that. And at first I thought he wanted to hire my company. I was like, oh, well, you hire my project and we'll, we'll put the team together and we'll build your systems and we'll do your stuff. And he was like, no, I need you to come in house. We have all this work. And by the way, like we're working on this massive project, which you're not really supposed to work on. And I was like, well, I want to work on that project and I want to be on site if you want me to come in house. And that project was the TWA hotel. I came in house and I still kept Matt project alive. I had, again, side things that I was working on. But the idea was you get to be on site at TWA. I had all of this experience in existing conditions. I mean, I had had more experience in the past five years in existing conditions than most people have in their entire careers. I had learned so much. And so it was like, okay, well, we have this crazy building that is, has this insane structure. It's pretty much impossible to coordinate because you don't know which way the structure is going. That's where you're going to be. And that was the Aeroserin Flight Center building. And to me, I mean, it was an honor to, to end up working there. And simultaneously, I started building the team to tackle. At the time, I think it was like about 80 or 90 hotels nationally. And by the time I, I left MCR, that was like 150 hotels. It was a challenge in so many respects, for sure. How long were you at MCR then before you completely severed ties and your full 100% time is devoted to the MAD project? I was there about four years, I think, three, four years. It was from like April of 2018 until it was 2021. Yeah, it was like a year after the pandemic. So like about three years. Yeah. So how did you know it was time to cut ties and fly on your own? Well, so it was a mix of things, I think. And the, and the pandemic, I think, really screwed everyone up, right? I think the first thing was at the time we were living in New York in 2019, summer of 2019, the opportunity to move to Utah came up as related to my husband's work. At the time, I was finishing, I was wrapping up TWA and I had started to travel more nationally to sort of service all these projects that we had. I had a team of six people and everyone was traveling like crazy. I was traveling about 10,000 miles a week and I knew that it wasn't really going to be sustainable. So when we moved to Utah, I was like, not only was I closer to the projects actually from Utah than from New York, I had a conversation with MCR and I was like, guys, they were used to having a national team. 
because all of their regional directors were regional and they didn't live in New York. And so it wasn't a crazy stretch for me to be able to Utah and continue working for them. So that was a plan in 2019. And it was also, it got me, you know, it got me started thinking like, hey, you know, what? and I had been fortunate that I had been able to build my own team. But at the same time, you still had those weird, you know, the weird corporate politics and the stuff that every company has. And there were some of the things that I was just like, you know, what, we could do this better. And if I had a choice, I would do it differently. And so I'm like, again, the idea comes back to you and you're like, okay. And so for me at the time, I was like, well, it means I'm probably going to slow down. I can ramp up my work. And then March of 2020 came around and COVID happened and it was insane, especially for the hospitality industry. I mean, seeing how a lot of these hospitality companies were able to save their companies during that time was remarkable. Like you're learning from the executives to see the work that they had to do. You don't get that many chances in your life to see people react to something so massive. My entire team was laid off. And then we had a ton of active work. And so it was a matter of administering those contracts and ensuring that projects were being finished, that there would be no lawsuits, no liens, that kind of stuff. The work changed a ton. And at the same time, I knew that even though I had slowly started to plan to leave, that number one, I was going to have to stay longer than I was planning to. But number two, I also had to get my act together because it wasn't going to be a normal market, right? Like starting a company in a state that you have no network in during a pandemic was just not. I'm like, I need to start now because I don't know how I'm going to do it. That was how Mad Project in Utah really happened and, and how I, I decided to grow the company from here. Talk to us more about the Mad Project. You're sitting on a plane next to somebody and they ask you what you do. How do you explain to them what the MAD project is and what your involvement is? I mean, I tell people that I build buildings for people. I build teams and buildings for other people. We are a four-fee developer. We're an owner's rep. We're experts in project management. And we do all kinds of really complex things. Uh, it was funny. I was on a podcast with Eric Anderton. And at the end, he's like, well, what does your company do? And I'm explaining it. And then I'm like, and then we do the really, you know, the less terrifying stuff like ground up development. And I was listening to that and I'm like, did I truly say that? The ground up development work that we do is the less complex, less difficult stuff that we're involved in. We work with a lot of family offices where there is not only the complexity of the work itself, but the complexity of the relationships of the family. We work with new developers who are just learning and getting into the space. And there's also a lot of teaching that we do as part of our work, which is really rewarding to me. And there's sort of like that professor mindset that, that I had for many years in doing research and going to MIT. So it's fulfilled a lot of those sort of moments of my learning and, and, and my career with like the buried clients that we have. And then we also work for very established shops that don't necessarily want to build in-house teams just because they, they're like, well, if the downturn comes, I don't want to fire half my people. And some of these things they are like, we don't want to be tracking furniture. So they hire me for that, my team. So that's generally what we do. What are some of the bigger projects that you're working on right now? I'll speak very generally because again, some of this work is family office work and it's a little bit, I can't really share like too many, too many details, but very generally, we're doing a fairly complex renovation in Florida for, again, family office. And it's a, not a historically designated building, but it's a building from the 1950s. It's this beautiful building and they do ultra high-end apartments. So you're doing like condo finishes on apartments. They, they get very handsome rents for their building. It's a gorgeous setting. Like the whole thing is beautiful. 
But it's very complex because the jurisdiction where they're in does not let us renovate the whole building at the same time. We have to do it in phases. And so this is going to be multiple years of renovation. And I think it's the highest dollar value renovation I've ever worked in where you still have an open buildings. Don't count the repositioning projects and stuff because those are hundred million, you know, multiple hundreds of millions of dollars. This is not quite that large, but for a renovation, it, it's a lot. It's a big dollar value. So we're working on stuff like that. I'm working with a really great team on this resort community in Oklahoma, and they've been wonderful. I'm also working with a Canadian developer, kind of helping them with their systems. And they're incredibly organized thinkers. I think they're the most organized people I've ever worked with in my life. And it's not just one of them. It's like their whole team and they're all impressive. And so it's been really great. We're also working with a hotel developer out of Florida and also helping them build out their teams and their systems. And we're working on a couple projects with them. Man, we're doing also looking right now. And again, we, we haven't finalized it yet, but we're looking at our first project in California. So that's been kind of cool. I mean, we have, we have a lot and we have several other things. I do a lot, not a lot. I do some very limited one-on-one sort of consulting for either upcoming developers or developers that are established that just need a little bit of sunny board. So I have two of those going on right now. One of those is super exciting because she's the first woman developer that I've worked with. So that's super cool. Um, and she's just getting into it, but she is also one of the smartest people I've ever met. We're extremely fortunate. We, we have this really varied group of clients and we have a great pipeline. We're waiting to start a couple projects that I'm super excited about. And again, we do all kinds of things. We'll do hospitality renovations, especially for branded products of Merit Hilton. We do that day in, day out. Not with our eyes closed, but it's bread and butter work. We do ground up development where $15 million up is kind of the sweet spot. That's the work that I really like to do because it's the easiest work we do. Now, why do you say that? Why is that the easiest? It's new construction. It's not like you run into a surprise at a return. When you're doing like a renovation, especially if it's higher end or if it's niche hospitality, you're going to run into things that all of a sudden all your plans don't work. And so that constant, you have to be on it and you're responding all the time. Those projects take up a ton of our time and they're incredibly complex. And I would say more fulfilling in a way than the new construction stuff. But the new construction stuff is just, you get to see a building from the ground up. I mean, there, it's a different feeling, I guess. It's fulfilling in a different way. But I, I really like that kind of work too, because it's placemaking. You're building something out of nothing and all of a sudden you're creating a landmark for the street, maybe. Maybe you're creating an outdoor space where people can gather. You're giving a facade to the city now that they didn't have. That's what I love about ground up. And then you don't have the craziness of existing conditions work, which is a lot. You said we, do you have a team helping you or is, are you hiring outside consultants or how are you structuring the company? It's a mix. So I try to keep a super lean team. I'm always a little bit shy to share like how big we are, but I do have a senior project manager who works with me full time. And I do have very key people that I call on that I've worked with for years. For me, the niche that we're in, it's a super high value niche. Our work is very high stakes. There is a time and a place to hire a VA overseas. My company is just not that kind of company. The people that I hire have very specific expertise. All my project managers are either professional engineers or registered architects. We all have consulting background. The guy that I work with very closely in doing sf and logistics, he's had logistics experience for years and he's fantastic. He is not full-time with me. 
but I work exclusively with him. If there's furniture involved in my projects, like he's on it. And they're all people that I trust implicitly. There's no question for me that they're going to handle a situation the way that I would. And they're exceptional. I'm super proud of that. And it's taken me years to build this team. This didn't happen overnight. And these people came very well recommended from the industry. It's just been, it wasn't like I put up a search on Craigslist and I found the first guy that showed up. It was, it's been, been very thoughtful. And the trust that they have in me is just, to me, mind blowing. The fact that these people believe in me this much to be part of what I have built, there's just no words for it. To me, it's almost like bigger than building the buildings, to, to be honest with you. And, and that's been a wonderful lesson from having my own shop. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, High interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi, netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. 
That's awesome. And I wanted to hear also, you're in Park City, you said, and we talked before the podcast started. You're managing your own house right now. You're building your house and presumably serving as the project manager. I've seen a lot of photos on Twitter. Talk to us about that project. Has that been a lot of fun for you? Yeah, it's been a lot of fun and it's been really crazy because so my husband is also in our industry and he also has a really big job. We're both very busy in our own professional lives for some reason, for good reason. And I can get into that. But we basically decided that I would be the architect of records. I became registered in the state of Utah. I designed our our plans. I actually had one of these project managers that's worked with me before. She's wonderful. She's a registered architect as well. She helped me with the drawings. So I didn't completely do them by myself. And then she and her husband are doing a lot of the interior design for us, which is really great because they have amazing taste. Anyway, I'm the registered architect. I'm the architect of record for the projects. I'm also the back office construction manager. And my husband is essentially the front office GC bag guy. You know, he comes and he pays people on Fridays and we're doing, we're building the house ourselves. And let me tell you, there's a reason why you need full teams to do these projects. It has been more work than I thought, which is crazy because I think I should have had a better expectation of how much work it was supposed to be. I haven't done a house from begin to fin- from start to finish in every single role before. And I don't even know that too many people do that for good reason. But it has been really wonderful. It's been very rewarding and it's been really cool. And and then the really neat thing too is to see the, the kind of professional team that my husband and I, we make a really great team. We have very similar professional values in the way that we treat our teams. He has his own team and they're doing, they're working on massive stuff. The way we approach the work, the pride we take in our work has just really come out. And so that, that's been really cool. Is this the first big project that you and your husband have done together? Yes and no. We actually met at work, working on a project together. But that was very brief because the minute that it was clear that we liked each other, it was also the moment. It, it coincided with the moment when I was going out of architecture and going into real estate development. But this is, I think, the first time where we really get into every single detail of it. I mean, I don't, to be honest, I don't think I've ever worked with anybody on a project to this depth. I mean, it, there's... Because we're in charge of the loan and we're in charge of, and I'm also in charge of the architecture and the design and the selecting every finish. And, and then, you know, he's managing all the subcontractors, but I'm also very involved because all the drawings and shop drawings and all the stuff that we need to do, I'm the one creating them for them as if I was the construction manager. And so it, it's been an incredibly involved project. Do you hash out a lot of the details together or do you have your lane and he has his lane and you just kind of trust each other to make your respective decisions? Or is there a lot of just hashing out of like, we should, I don't know, use this tile or this color, you know, like that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, it's been really cool too in that way because he is more the field in this case. And I'm more, I mean, I'm the architect. And so I'm the one with like the crazier ideas and the one that's always like pushing and pushing. Like, I want the railing to look like this. And he's like, you are insane. And I'm like, well, but this is how I want to do it. Like, I actually know the technical, like, I'm going to fasten it this way. And I know, and I have to coordinate it with this material. And like, I know all these things too. What I really like about that is that it requires that you present your ideas to an equally proficient professional. And so now I'm having to justify how I'm thinking through things to someone who knows really well how to build. 
it's been really neat in that the thought process has to be super clear. And what I like about it is that when our ideas get put in into the house, they're fully baked. Like there is no like we don't get to the house and all of a sudden realize that we have an issue because we have each other to vet them. And we pick each other's ideas apart. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, there isn't like a, yeah, like, that's great. Like, there's like, no, I don't think that's going to work. And this is why. And then it's like, oh, yeah, you're right. Like, let's do it this way instead. There is, there are some moments where there's more like his lane and, and my lane and we have very different styles. Like, I'm a planner. Like, I'm like, I need to have everything figured out. And he's more like by the seat of his pants. He's like, well, I'll just go in the field and I'll figure it out. And sometimes I'm like, no. I'm like, because if you get this wrong, then we can't have that, that detail. And now the windows are going to look right, you know? It's made both of us stretch in that way. And to be honest with you, I think it's also been a really great test of our relationship and not in like a bad way, but it's sort of like we have that mutual respect where we can disagree on something and we can work through it. And there's no like, I'm going to leave you or like, you know, like, no, you don't. It doesn't escalate to to like the personal offense. That has been I've been surprised because a lot of people are a lot of architects I know. One architect I know was like, well, we had to hire another architect to do our house because he and his wife are architects. And he was like, we, that was not going to happen. We were going to end up divorced. Like, it was like, it was so bad. And then I've also had a lot of people in construction when we tell them, oh, I'm the architect of record and we're building the house. They'll say, well, why are you doing this to yourself? There's been a lot there. And I think that definitely not for the faint of heart, definitely not something to do if you don't have, if you're not extremely proficient at like all the different aspects of it. And definitely not something to do without professional guidance. I mean, I wouldn't recommend it. The reason I ask, my, my wife and I are involved in renovating a building. We bought an old brick, a hundred year old building that we're in the middle of uh, renovating. And she's a mental health therapist and we rent out individual office space for therapists. And we've got one building. This is our, our second one. And so I just was curious to hear what your experience was like, because we it gets challenging at times for sure. Like we've got different ideas of how to do things. And it definitely helps to kind of have your specialty in your lane that, you know, you trust the other person to make the decision on. For sure. And I think also like any relationship, like you picture battles. Sometimes we'll have things that really, really matter to Mike. Like he's like, this is how this has to happen. And I'm like, OK, well, I can live with that. And every now and then I'll find like a battle in hindsight that I'm like, I should have fought that battle because now now it's more work for me. But yeah, like in any relationship, you pick your battles and you're respectful of the other person's ideas. And but again, we have that generosity in the work and the idea of moving it forward is something that we both share. And we all return. We return to that. And so I'm extremely, you know, we're extremely fortunate. And then like in any relationship, it's something that we've worked really hard to bring into our relationship. And the end product is so cool to see. Like once you've put in all this work and blood, sweat and tears, and then you see the final thing, it's like really rewarding. When's the house going to be finished? We're pushing for an occupancy early June. And then I expect there between furnishings and millwork, like more like the finished millwork, like paneling and stuff like that, probably to take us through September, October. But we're going to be living in the house by the middle of June. I wanted to talk a little bit. You're working with the GC. Correct, I presume, or are you? No, you're not at all. No, we are working with a local GC, but but he's a friend, and, and we're actually doing all the work. But we're working like we have a, a really neat relationship with them. They have great resources. They're local, which that has been a big part of it. Um, it's his license, but we're doing all the project management. He comes around like maybe once a month or every six weeks, and he's like, "How are you kids doing? You're still alive. We haven't killed each other." 
And he has some great connections, which have been obviously necessary for trades locally. But we are, we're doing all the work. I wanted to talk a little bit about Twitter and the role that Twitter's played for you, the growth that it's had for you in your business. Talk to us a little bit about your experience with it. You were sharing with me that it's a little, you're a little hesitant to share. Maybe you're a little more introverted or private by nature. Talk to us about Twitter and some of your learnings from your involvement on there. For sure. Just kind of going back to the idea that I started Mad Project in Utah in the middle of 2020, which I had no network in Utah. There was nobody outside in Utah or in any or anywhere in the country. There was a little bit of that. I was listening to a podcast and I don't remember which one, but Keith Wasserman was on it. And he was like, look, if you want to be in it, you have to get on Twitter. And so I was like, "Okay, it's free. I get on and all of a sudden I, I find Moses and Chris Powers and they're really wonderful. Like I kind of recognize that abundance mentality immediately. And I'm like, oh, these are my people. And they're sharing how some of their challenges they've faced. They're sharing some of their experience They're and they're incredibly generous and wonderful. And so I'm like, okay, I can do this. This is something that I is my, more my steed. Because for me, the, the gratuitously putting yourself out there doesn't have a ton of effect. It doesn't speak to me. And it really depends on what kind of business you're running. And from the beginning, I've known that the kind of work that I like to do is sort of this boutique, niche, super specific, exceptional service. The people that work with me are exceptional people. And it's almost a waste if I go around doing like a high volume sort of shop where it's just not what we are. I think for me, it really made me think through that process because there's people who approach Twitter because they have more high volume um, businesses. You know, if you're selling a course or if you're or if you're selling an ebook, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way, it's a different business than the business that I'm in. And so you're obviously going to approach your audience in a different manner. And you you obviously need a much bigger audience than the one that I need to promote my work. And again, it's self-selecting in a way because my content is so niche and so specific and it can get very technical. It's almost like textbook content. It's almost academic sometimes. And again, I have that whole background. That self-selects for the audience that is my audience, right? The people who are here to have real estate development conversations about the hard work that it takes and the self-reflection and the softer, squishier things about like, whom do you want to be? Those are my people. Those are the people who end up hiring me for their projects and my team. For me, it's less about growing a a ginormous audience where I'm going to have a better chance of selling a course. And if I was selling courses, that would probably be my approach, but it isn't. I think that, you know, it's been sort of a, like a cycle in a way. It's made me reflect a lot about whom do I want to be? What kind of services am I providing? What kind of team do I have? What kind of work do we want to do? Because that is how I present myself. And it's had the intended effects. Honestly, my newsletter has a super high open rate, which is like over 60%, which I know that for newsletters is really high. My proposal approval rate is also about 75%. And that speaks to the way that, that we've built the brand, that we've put ourselves out there and that, that I've put my face out there. And like we were saying earlier, it's not in my nature. But for me, it's always been about doing the work and letting that speak for itself. But the reality is that you can't do the work and then not tell anybody about it. And that, that was a lesson that I learned working in development too, because 
one of the developers that I worked for, he was very about getting his face out. And I was just always like, my God, this guy, like he wants all this attention. And one day we were talking about just very generally like media and stuff. And, and he was like, you know, it's a shame for you to do all this really great work and then never tell anyone about it. You are depriving the world of knowing that this effort exists. And that to me sort of made that switch into thinking about it in a different way. There's this girl I went to high school with and, and she became a professional singer. And I saw an interview with her a few years ago and she said something really similar. She said, you know, my biggest fear is that I die and that all my music dies inside of me. And to me, that has really shifted a lot of my thinking and how I approach putting myself out there because it isn't really in my nature. You know, and the whole story about my parents and that kind of stuff, the story about my mom, like, I think this is the first time I've ever talked to someone on a podcast about it. You know, most people don't necessarily get that personal. And I appreciate it. And it's, I think, a really beautiful story, especially as I get to kind of pass that on about my mom, because she's so cool. Like, she's just awesome. She's like this fabulous character. So why not have that approach to it, even though I'm very private, right? And I, and I rarely speak about my husband. I don't necessarily talk about what he does, because he's going to totally steal my thunder. And he's just so much more charming than I am. She doesn't exist, as far as anyone's concerned. But putting yourself out there and, and sort of having that cycle of Twitter that shows you how to do it and shows you how, because you see other people, right? And you see how they do it and it teaches you all those lessons. And obviously, it's been a fantastic way to connect with people that I wouldn't have had the chance to connect with otherwise. So it's kind of like I'm bringing my button and I'm going and I'm talking to people and I'm exchanging buttons. And that's becoming like a really neat thing about Twitter, too. I've come up with some really great friends in the last two years. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, like you said, it's just self-selecting. You find your tribe through there. I heard somebody say too, it's almost like you're doing a disservice not to share your work and putting putting it out there. Because just my research in the four or five hours I did for the interview for you, like I got so much out of it. You know, like you learn, I've learned for each guest, like it's a tremendous learning. And it's like by putting it out there, it's like you're helping so many other people. So it's pretty cool. I wanted to talk to you about you tweeted one of the tweets that I liked that one of the biggest superpowers in business is simply asking and that knowing how to ask and what to ask for is what distinguishes the pros. And I think this was inspired by a book by Amanda Palmer, who I'm a fan of, actually. It's called The Art of Asking, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Let People Help Me. Talk to me about that book, how it's inspired you and a little bit about The Art of Asking. I read that book, I want to say... Probably around the time when I started Mad Project in New York, around 2017, because, and I'll just begin with, I have not mastered this at all. Like the idea of it, I get, and I'm still not very good at asking. I think one of the things is that that resilience I learned from my mother may be very self-sufficient. And when you're very self-sufficient, you don't want to ask people for things. And I realized that that has handicapped me in a lot of ways. I realized that perhaps that that's the difference between me developing my own projects and not. But at the same time, whenever I put a proposal out in front of a client now, I am, I'm asking. That's asking too. And so I'm getting better at it, but I'm not quite where I want to be in terms of the comfort that I get. About two years ago, I, with someone that I met on Twitter, we put together a pretty cool deal and we were in really serious negotiations to get this deal done. And that was going to require raising money. And that was not supposed to be the thing that I would do, but I was still going to have some minor role in it. And when it came to, 
I went and I asked people because I've been in the industry for some time now. And so I have enough of a network where I had people to ask. And the one thing that people always told me was you're never going to raise the money. Like, you're, you know, you could go on this, but if you can't raise the money, then you're nobody and you're never going to raise the money. Like, you don't, that's not the side you come from. You're not going to be able to do it. At the same time that we slowly lost the deal because we couldn't get to the negotiation where, where the deal was awarded to us, I went out and I raised the money. I actually raised the money. And that to me was a massive lesson because it was supposed to be the hardest part and it didn't take me that long. It took me like three weeks, which... For a rookie project, the amount of money we were raising was not nothing. Can you talk about the project? Not a ton. I mean, let's just say another developer got it and they took it in an insane direction. It's here in Utah and they created this really crazy lifestyle resort plan. And I'm very curious to see how that's going to play out. But basically, I did the thing that I wasn't supposed to be able to do. And out of all of the things that came around it, it was the thing that I had the least experience in. And it was the thing that was actually easiest. To this day, I still remember that. And I'm still terrified of, of raising money for also a bunch of historical personal reasons. But that to me was reinforcing that lesson of the, you just got to ask, especially because I'm at a point in my career where I've built enough of a reputation. There's enough people in the industry who know me that I do have people who are like, the minute that you decide to build something, I'm going to give you money because I know that you can execute. And I have that trust and, it, and it's taken me years to build. And so turning around and honoring that and asking, I'm, I'm still putting that together. But I love that book. I think everybody should read it. For the listeners that don't know of Amanda Palmer, tell a little bit about her story and what she did. Amanda Palmer is an artist. I think she was broke and she was like, well, I don't really know how I'm going to make any money. And so she decided to be like a, a live statue and she would set herself up in like Harvard Square and she would give people like she would just stand there for like hours. Right. And then people would kind of come up to her and that she would kind of move. And, and then, you know, she would give people like a flower or she would do something and, and then people would give, give her money for it. So her whole story of getting over that whole block of asking as well, which when you're an artist, that's basically what you're doing all the time. Essentially, if you own a shop, if you, anything that you do in life is going to require asking mastering that to that degree, I think is, is something that I can only strive for. I mean, I'm not all the way there, but it is something that, that is, is something very present for me. She's got a great podcast that she did, an interview that she did with Tim Ferriss that it's fairly old. It's probably several years old, but I remember listening to it and it's, it's a really good one. I may have listened to it too, because I'm, I'm a big fan. I mean, and, and just the way she like puts herself out in the world is really remarkable. I think she's someone that, like many artists, I think there's so much to learn from them because they put so much of themselves out there that there's just a ton of material. Real quick, I wanted to ask you, are you involved in any, you talked about raising capital. Are you involved you've, and you've been involved in a ton of super interesting projects? Are you involved in trying to build out like your own real estate portfolio? A lot of our listeners are working on, to whatever degree, their real estate portfolio. Is that something that and I know you're doing your mountain home in Park City. Are you looking to do other projects? Definitely looking to do other projects. Not working on any 
one of them specifically right now, I think between the house and my shop. And we've also built our own internal project management software and going through that whole process and beginning to consider using it or selling it or putting it out in the public has taken a ton of my time as well. Maybe when I finish the house and I don't know if that's a cop out to the whole conversation. The way we approach the house, to be honest with you, I approach the house and like a developer. It's also helped a lot with the decision making because anything that we've done for the house is so that it eventually, if, it's, if it goes on the market one day, I want it to sell really well and I want it to sell very quickly. For us, home is New York. Maybe we don't sell it, but I don't know. But I want to set myself up in a way where I could. The way we looked at the construction loan, the way we financed it, we got extremely lucky that there was no, it was nothing anyone could have done about that. We got extremely lucky with the timing. We locked in our mortgage in uh, early 2022. Our rate is crazy. We got extremely lucky at the moment when we bought the land because we bought our land at the end of 2019 before land prices in this area skyrocketed. We have a ton of luck going for us, but also the way that we thought of the house, we thought of it as an asset. And, I, and I'm super comfortable in, in knowing that it's going to appraise based on all the values of the homes around at a really great loan to value percentage. So I think even the house in my mind has always been a development project for me in a way. Obviously, we're going to live in it. And they always say, you know, your primary home is not an investment. And so there's also that whole side of it. But it's definitely something that I want to do, but I want to do really cool stuff and I want to do it with really cool people. And so that's a bit, that's a little bit harder. I think once we finish this house later, later this year, I think there's going to be a bunch of sort of bucket list items that I'm going to start working on next because the house has been a massive endeavor that's taken us. We've saved for this house for like four years and then we've been working on it pretty much full time for the last two. I wanted to ask about your why, like when times get tough and like the grind of real estate is definitely a grind at times. What's your why for what keeps you going? And just now after talking about my whole story, I think really being a a source of stability for my family. I think that that's my why. And I think that just the history with my parents and, and sort of, you know, with my mom, it's really important for me, not only financially, but, but emotionally too. And sort of being that kind of reference point. That it really is my why. And it doesn't only extend to the financial aspect of the work, but also the way that I do the work and my reputation. Because just the same way that I, you know, that I love it when I hear the stories of other people talking about my mom and how wonderful she's, she was to them or how she helped them in some way. And my mom's always been helping other people somehow, you know, however she could. And so whenever I hear those things, it's kind of like she's referential to me in that way. And for me, like ever since I've been like about 25 years old, I've been supporting my mom. And so that's also brought that kind of responsibility and understanding, you know, like as an immigrant too, and and seeing my mom work so hard, that responsibility of you need to study, you need to be really good at school, you need to really do things well, because the family is on you. It's almost like a rite of passage, right? Like you almost have that sit down. And it's not really a sit down. It's something that happens sort of organically in your your late teens where you're like, you understand the gravity of like, if you screw this up, it's bad for everyone. To really be that, that source of stability for my family, both as a person of integrity, but also, you know, financially is super important. That's amazing. I really appreciate you sharing all of this, Antonia, like the more personal stuff I, I really like. And thank you for your generosity with your time. And just sharing yourself and the knowledge that, you've, that you have. 
For our listeners that want to reach out to you or learn more about you, you mentioned your newsletter. What are some ways that they can get in touch with you, maybe sign up for the newsletter, things like that? My website, you can sign up for my newsletter at the bottom of my homepage and you can reach me on Twitter. I'm fairly easy to find. If you send me a thoughtful message, I will respond. Yeah. In fact, the way we connected was like you did that Amanda Palmer, The Art of the Asking. And I think I, at that point, I was like, will you come on the podcast? That was my ask. That's great. And I think I've posted about her book like a few years ago. Yeah. That's very cool. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'd love to have you. I, there's a hundred more questions that I have that maybe some other time we could do it and have you back on the show. I'd love to. This is really great. Okay, folks, that's all I had for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here real soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.